So Hebrews, it's one of the books in the Bible that doesn't have an author attached to it. The Greek of Hebrews, um, I am not a, I took two terms of, of Greek, that was it. But those that really know Greek, they say it's the best Greek. That whoever authored Hebrews had incredible Greek. And one of the things with Paul is he wrote in a more casual kind of everyday, it's called koinonia Greek. He wrote in a kind of a, a more casual style. So it's one of the reasons why people think, ah, maybe he didn't write it because the Greek is closer to Dr. Luke's book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, for me, I don't think that's a reason. Uh, I use different voices depending on who I'm talking to, depending on the audience, right? If I go teach the high school group or a college group, I'm going to kind of talk one way. But if I go and I talk to uh, a retirement home, which I did for a long time, I'm not going to go in there and be like, what's up, dog? I'm going to go in very differently. I'm going to tailor, right? So this book, probably to a Jewish audience, and maybe it's tailored that way. So one guy said, Paul wrote it in Hebrews and Luke translated it into Greek. So both of them had their touch on it. Nobody knows. Could have been Apollos, could have been Barnabas, could have been Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know. What I do know is the Holy Spirit said that scripture and it is breathed out exactly what I wanted. So however the process was to get Hebrews, it's exactly what God wanted. And so the author of this is steeped in the Old Testament. And he's assuming that his audience is as well. There are over 100 direct or indirect references to the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. So that's like eight per chapter. They just come at you, rapid fire. So that's why it's believed this is to a Jewish audience, also the context and what's being addressed and them going back to some stuff. So it's unique, though, because no one knows the audience. It's not to a certain person. It's not to a group of people. It's not even to a place. It's to a type of person. A city dweller, we find in chapter 13. So it's a, a kind of person that lived in a city and had the pressure of cities. Cities have a different pressure than rural areas. Do you know that? Like, I have friends that have left here and lived in big cities like Portland. And they go up there and they're jacked up four-wheel drive truck and they're gun racking back and their cowboy hat and they come back in a Prius or a Subaru. I'm like, what happened, man? Pressure, bro. You just can't do it there. So there's unique pressures in cities. Sexual pressures, conforming pressures. There's just, there is this pressure there. And what had happened to them is that pressure began to break them. And so they begin to just say, ah, I'm not going to church anymore. They stop fellowshipping. They stop hearing God's word, stop responding to God's word. And when you do that, the thing is, you don't stay still. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. There's no pause in the Christian life. And we all know that if you live any type of life for Jesus and tried to kind of stop for a while, you know that you go backwards because that's just the way it is. It takes momentum to keep pursuing Jesus. And so the momentum was gone and they were drifting backwards. So this book, it could have been a sermon as well, is to ignite the fire in lukewarm believers, which I need that. Because like all of us, we have these waves and we need reminders of, 
hey, it's worth it. Look out. So even the warnings, six hard warnings in here are good. They're healthy for me. They help me evaluate where I'm at. Okay, so we're going to jump in. Chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has passed, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know that God speaks? Why does God need to speak? Because we, his kids, have questions, right? Any parent in here that has ever had a child, no, they come out of the womb with a question mark over their head. And they're always asking questions. We have questions, so God speaks. Huxley, the famous agnostic, he said, there are three questions science will never be able to answer. Number one, the meaning of life. Go to RCC tomorrow morning and try to sign up for a class on the meaning of life. I'd like to take a class on the meaning of life and see what they say to you. Yeah, yeah that's in our department. Because they can't answer that. Number two, how did we get into this condition? If you're wondering what condition is there, watch the news when you get home today. How did we get in that condition? And then thirdly, how do we get out of it? So God, in his word, speaks into these big questions. And it says, in many ways. Read the Old Testament. Look how inventive God is when he talks to his people. Sometimes it's directly through a prophet. Sometimes it's through a bush, right? I got to get a message. I'm going to speak through a bush. Sometimes it's in a dream with an interpretation. Sometimes it's a vision. Sometimes it's a donkey, right? So if you think you're awesome because God has spoken through you, he used a donkey. That will bring humility back into your life. Doesn't take much, right? But what happened was the people began to become hard of hearing. So then God had to be many ways. He had to tweak things in order to shock his people that had got dull in hearing to hear again. So Ezekiel the prophet, who's sent to the people in Babylon who don't want to hear him anymore, God says this to him. Okay, Ezekiel, I want you to go outside. Build a Lego model of the city of Jerusalem. Put a big iron pan between you and the city and lay down on your side for 390 days and cook prison rations using human dung as your fire. And so Ezekiel's like, can we use cow manure instead, God? I'm like, that guy needs a lesson in the art of, right? Going back and forth a little bit here. Be like, you know, can we do Chinese takeout and then see where you end up instead? And then God says, after you've done that, roll over on your side and do it for another 40 days. Why? Because the people weren't here anymore. So he had to begin to change like drama. The, the prophet Isaiah, same thing. 
In Isaiah chapter 20, Mrs. Isaiah is out drinking her coffee and all of a sudden, Mr. Isaiah comes trooping right through the living room and he's headed out the front door and she's like, what are you doing? And if you think your husband dresses poorly, he wears camo shorts to a wedding, Mrs. Isaiah has got you beat because Mr. Isaiah was naked. And she's like, what are you doing? Well, God told me I have to go naked. And the next morning, the next morning, for three and a half years, Isaiah is naked to shock people. Can you imagine that? Actually, don't imagine that. Sorry. <laughs> but I mean, the, the neighbors would be like watching the flap on the front of the tent. Hide the kids, hide the kids. He's coming out. <laughs> like insane to shock them. Hosea is told, marry a prostitute who's going to cheat on you, right? I mean, it was so hard to be a prophet. When Jeremiah was called to be a prophet in chapter one, he said, please choose somebody else. Like, I am not up for this gig. I don't want to do this. But it was the hard-hearted condition of people where God had to try change the way so that he could communicate. But guess what happened with all the ways and all the people and all the stuff that God wanted to communicate? Guess what happened? The message became unclear. Like my daughter Carissa one time, I was trying to teach her about the importance of always telling the truth. So I told her the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? We went through the whole story. And so at the end of it, I said, so sweetie, what do you think? She said, I really like the wolf. I'm like, what? How did you get that from that story, right? That's, what, that's how God felt. How, what, what are you talking about, right? So when you read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus comes and he gives the Beatitudes, the blesseds, guess what those are? That is the exact opposite person they believe would be blessed. What, the poor? No way. Persecuted? No way. God's favor is you're rich, you got bling, you drive a brand new Corvette, you got a three-car garage. That's God's blessing. What? It's, you got a wolf out of that? It's turning this thing upside down because they heard wrong. They heard wrong. So God says, okay, I'm gonna give you a better method. It's verse two, the son. He's the message now. He has spoken through his son. The Greek there is huios, adult, mature son. A huios was identical to the dad. He had a signet ring on. He could sign documents. He could go to the bank and pull out money. He had everything, okay? So when Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, he says something that would have shocked people. It was, hey, you heard in the law, it said this, but I say to you, what was he saying right there? I'm writing a new Torah. Yeah, yeah, that was Moses. God spoke through Moses, but I say to you, he was equating his word with God's word in the Old Testament. I'm writing a brand new Torah. I'm not like him. I'm the son. I've got the ring. He's heir of all things. Jesus isn't broke. He doesn't need your money. The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many cattle fit on a hill? I'm not a farmer, but I'm thinking a few. A few would fit on. So he's, you're not gonna find Jesus, a noise in the night, you're not gonna find Jesus down in your fridge rummaging around. Like, where's the food, bro? Do you eat it all? You glutton, hell for you. He's not poor, right? He's God. He's wealthy. He's the creator. He's the creator. Wait a second, Matt. I thought God created everything. 
right. So read Genesis 1.26. There's a statement that is astounding. God has this conversation and he says, let us make man in our image. Plural, 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 plural. What? Who's he talking to there? Keep going through the Bible. You come to Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, it's the great Shema, the great hear. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. That one there is the word akkad. It speaks of a plural unity. So I could make this statement with akkad. The beavers are one terrific football team. Right? You know it's not one person, right? It's a hundred people. But that one, it's the same kind of use of that word. It's the word akkad. And you can just go through the whole Bible. That there's this theme, plural, 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 plural. In fact, commentaries written by Jewish authors prior to the second century AD spoke about a second Yahweh in the Bible because it's so frequent. That there was the, the invisible, transcendent Yahweh, but there was this visible, touchable, moving Yahweh as well, the second Yahweh, because of all this. Who is it? It's the Son. So when God speaks, the voice is the Son. That's the way it works. So he's the Son. And then it says this just great little word picture. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Like the Son. Can you divide the rays of the sun from the sun? Can you have a sun without sun rays? No. Can you have the rays without the sun? No. They are one in the same, right? The nuclear fusion that happens is the sun, and out of that comes the radiance. They're a package deal. You cannot have one without the other. That's what it's saying right here, package deal. He is the express image. Huge here. Jesus is the express image of the Father. Only used here in the Greek. One time. This was debated by the Nicene Council long, long, long time ago, about 1,800 years ago. And they were trying to figure out the relationship between the Son and the Father. How do we do this? And they were going to codify it and write it out. And there was a debate there between this group called the Semi-Arianists who wanted Jesus to be another Greek god, like a titan, where you know, Zeus would come down and have relationships with a woman and produce this hybrid, half god, half man, a Hercules, a titan. And they're like, if we do that with Jesus, he'll be acceptable to the Greeks. They'll be like, oh yeah, he's just another titan, cool. So they're Semi-Arianists. And they wanted to use this word. It was homo iousis. And it means similar. But if you take the I, Greek iota, out of that word, it becomes homo oesis, which means identical. And so the Nicene Council said to the semi-Arianists, no, we will not give you one iota. It's where that statement comes from. Uh-uh. God the Son and God the Father are exact, completely of the same nature. Here's why this is important. If you want to know what God is like, 
you look at the Son. He is the express image of the Father. If you want to know if he's compassionate and merciful and gracious, if you want to know if, if, if God can handle being around sin, who did Jesus always hang out with? Yeah, the wrong people, right? The gospels are God having meals with all the wrong people. That's the gospels. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at the son because he is the express image. And then verse three finishes by saying this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He purifies sins and he sat down. Sin is unpopular today. We don't like standards. We're back to the book of Judges where everyone gets to do what's right in their own eyes. That's the kind of world we want, right? That burning down buildings is the most righteous thing we can do. We want that kind of a world now. Sin's unpopular. But at its core, here's what sin is. And C.S. Lewis is the guy that came up with this. He says, it's real simple. It's either thy will be done or my will be done. At its very core, that's what it is. Either you are living in alignment with the creator and sustainer of the universe, thy will be done. Or you're taking that position and you're deciding what is right or what is wrong. And since that's what sin is, it's shaking your fist at your creator and your maker, then only he can take care of it. So he alone can deal with sin. This is a major theme in the book of Hebrews and we will see it over and over and over again. Jesus deals with it because he's God. He's the only one that can. And then it says he sat down. We just went through Exodus. We went through the tabernacle. We went through the outer courts. We went through everything that's in there. Guess what is not in the tabernacle? A lazy boy recliner. You don't get a kickback there. You are working nonstop. Think about two million people needing their sins forgiven. That's a massive job. There's no sitting down. You worked and worked and worked. Jesus sat. That's what we said on Sunday. On the cross, he said, it's finished. The work is done. I sit down. There are people that come to me and they're worried about their sin. And they're worried about having done something super bad. And I always tell them this. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how many of them were in the future? All of them, right? It's not a shock to Jesus. He's like, oh, I never knew he'd do that. Well, he's out, man. All of them were. And he sat down, paid in full. And now we get into the meat of this chapter, which in our outline, chapters one and two, Jesus is better than angels. And I'm gonna give you five reasons this text says that Jesus is superior to angels. Is that a train or is that a phone? Is that a train? That's awesome. Man, is that feedback? Is that, oh, it's a train. Oh, good. I'm gonna go hobo for a while. So five reasons. Verse five. 
For to which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Number one, Jesus is a better worth. That's why he's worshiped. Angels are not worshiped. Read Revelation 19. John the Revelator is caught up into the kingdom, the fulfillment of it. And he is amazed at it. He's floored. And he has this tour guide named, who's this angel who's showing him all around. He's so floored by it. He just falls on his hands and knees and starts to worship this angel. And this angel is like, hey, knock it off, man. Get up. You don't worship me. And then the story keeps going and streets of gold and river of life and tree of life. And in chapter 22, he can't help himself again. Second time, falls down in front of this angel, starts to worship him. And the angel's like, dude, you are going to get me in trouble. Get up right now. Worship God. Now, why are angels so paranoid about worship? Because they know what happened. There was an angel once, Isaiah 14 tells us, who saw God's throne and he became jealous. And he said, I want to take my throne up where his is. And I want to be up with God. And I want to be worshiped. He had an eye disease. And because of that, there was a rebellion. And with that rebellion, that angel was cast out. His name is Lucifer. The angels know this. Don't do that to me. Do not do that to me. I saw where this leads. Worship God. Why are we supposed to worship God? What does he have, low self-esteem or something? I mean, why? Why does it say this? Why do we need that? Here's why. Does anyone in here remember? It's an antidote, I know, but I think it tells the story. Does anybody in here remember Chris Farley? Saturday Night Live, right? Van Down by the River, remember? Okay, I don't watch TV either. I just read my Bible and pray as well. We can get that over with. <laughs> now we all know who Chris Farley is. Let's move forward, right? He's in an interview and he said, John Belushi is my hero. You may not remember John Belushi, but here's what John Belushi was. He was a funny, fat guy who was on Saturday Night Live, who then moved to funny movies and died of a drug overdose at 33. Chris Farley, funny, fat guy, gets his start on Saturday Night Live, goes on to make funny movies, dies of a drug overdose at 33. Because what you worship, you become. I watch my kids with their Instagram feeds. And you start to look at what they're worshiping with their Instagram feeds and you start to see them mimic it with clothing, with style, with talk. Because what you worship is what you become. And God knows this. God knows this. If you want a flourishing, brilliant life, you should be like me. And if you worship me, what will happen to you is this. You will become more like me and you'll have more joy and more life in you. So worship God. That's why. It's not him needing our worship, it's us needing him as our hero. And when we worship him, we become more and more like him. So Jesus is better than angels because he's worshiped. He's better than angels because of his rule. But of the son, verse eight, he says, 
Your, this is a killer text. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Angels do what they're told. Jesus, when he is being betrayed, he says, I can call six legions of angels right now. No problem, man. We'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of angels here because they do what they're told. Jesus, verse eight says, the son, but the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What do the cults attack when it comes to Christianity? The divinity of Jesus. That's their attack. That's always been the attack. They try to take away the divinity of Jesus. So a number of years ago, I'm in my front yard. It's a Saturday. I'm working with a shovel. Up pulls this car. I can tell it's a guy, two gals in there. The guy's in an inexpensive suit. It's a Saturday morning. I just knew Jehovah's Witnesses. I tried to hide behind my shovel, but I'm not that skinny. I'm like, no, nope. <laughs> and the guy got out. And I couldn't believe it. He's like, hello, friend. I'm like, well, we'll see about that. We'll see how this ends. And then we'll see. So I'll start an hour-long conversation. And, and it's just going on and on and on. And, and I don't tell him what I am or anything like that. I'm just like, okay, let's... Let's, I've got a bunch to dig back here. And um, he says, well, you know, what's your issue with Jehovah's Witnesses? I said, well, you're anti-Trinitarian. You don't believe that Jesus is God. Oh, well, no problem. Let me show you. So he opens up his New World Translation Bible. And it's a unique translation. Opens it up to John chapter one, verse one. Because in the New World Translation, that verse says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was a God. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I said, did you know that the New World Translation is the only translation in history, in any language, at any time that has ever added a in there? I mean, this is a radical departure from every other known translation. You are the only translation in 2,000 years in thousands of languages that has ever added the A in there. That's amazing to me. And because that's so vital, you guys must know why your Greek scholars decided to add an A in there. They said, no, we don't know why. I said, I'll tell you why you did. <laughs> I said, the word theos, God, in the Greek, is not preceded by the definite article. And because it's not preceded by the definite article, it gives the slightest, 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 teeniest, teeniest little percentage that you could, if you wanted to, wedge an A in there. But no other translation has done that. You know why? Because it's not just the words that give us the Bible, it's the context and the grammar. And if you just keep reading a little bit, it says this, that he, this word, the logos, he, created all things and nothing was created apart from him. So what does that mean? If the word created everything, what could he not be? Created. He's eternal. So the context now drives away that teeny, teeny, teeny little possibility that there could be an A in there and it's gone. That's why no other translation in history has ever put the A in there. And the guy just looked at me and said, we don't meet people like you. <laughs> and we got to go. And they've never been back. <laughs> what do they attack? 
the divinity, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. This verse is unbelievable. Look what it's saying. This is God speaking. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. What did God call Jesus? God. God the Father called Jesus God. And his throne is eternal. And his scepter of righteousness is how he's going to rule this kingdom. This is a go-to verse with people that say, yeah, I don't think the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. I just go right here. What does that say? If you believe the Bible, the Bible teaches clearly the divinity of Jesus. So he has a better rule because he is God. Number three, he has a better life. Verse nine, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a recipe for a glad life. Love righteousness, hate wickedness. Simple, I love that. If you love righteousness and hate wickedness, happy life is what it produces. Because sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. It hurts you. It hurts me. People that argue with me on this, I always say this. Have you or do you know anyone that's ever been hurt by sexual sin? And they're like, whoa, yeah, totally. Yeah. This Bible said, that's gonna hurt you. Keep it inside the confines of marriage. That's where it's safe and it does its most usefulness for you to have a happy life, right? So how do you do this? How do you love righteousness and hate wickedness? Here's my best way of explaining it. I love ice cream. Breyer's Natural Vanilla is by far the superior ice cream made in the universe. It is the best. There's no argument about it. Every test shows that. I love Breyer's Natural Vanilla. I'm getting to the age where it no longer loves me. So I need to be careful. So what do I do? I'm like, hmm, what do I do about that? Do I start like investigating it? Like I should really know what it's made of. It's made of three things. Milk, sugar, and vanilla. I like ice cream that has three ingredients. I don't like all the other names you can't pronounce. You know it's good. Should I investigate it? Should I read consumer reports on it? Should I evaluate the temperature it should be stored at and go to the best stores where it's kept just to know to stay away from it? Like don't go in this store. It has really good Breyer's National Vanilla there. They keep it at the right temperature. No, here's what I found. I found if I replace Briar's Nectar Vanilla with something else, I lose the appetite for it. I found I don't even want ice cream if I've eaten like three or four chocolate bars. None. I'm done with it. <laughs> In the Bible, you can go to Ephesians chapter four. You can go to Colossians chapter three. It talks about this. It says, put off that, but put on something put on something, put on righteousness. The, the, the problem with some people is this, they, they sweep the house empty, but they don't fill it up with something good. You gotta fill it up with something good. You gotta replace it. Man, serve, have fellowship, teach, get involved, have mission, be creative. You've got to replace that bad with something better, something Jesus-centered. 
simply the mission and beauty and fellowship and building up of other people. And what you find is, I don't even have an appetite for that stuff anymore. People could tempt me if they want to. I'm not doing that. I found something better. Jesus calls it the greener pastures and the stiller waters. That's what you want. You replace the bad with something better. So you get a better life. And he's got a better creation. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. There's a better creation. This text says that Jesus laid the foundation of earth in the beginning. You know, Genesis 1-1 is big theology. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because for 1,900 plus years, that was scoffed at. Because science said, uh-uh, the earth has always been here. The universe has always been here. It's called steady state universe. And that was the predominant scientific philosophy from enlightenment, actually it goes back to Greeks, from enlightenment all the way up. Carl Sagan, if you ever watched his show, taped right when this was beginning to change, he would say, look around, look at everything you see. It's always been this way and it will always be this way. That is steady state universe. So strong was that thinking that Einstein, when he made his theory of relativity, one of the most incredible theories ever, he added a fudge factor because a theory of relativity predicted a beginning. And everybody knew there's no beginning. So he added a fudge factor. At the end of his life, he said it was one of the biggest regrets he made. He should have let the theory stand. So now, why does nobody believe in a steady state universe anymore? We got these things called telescopes. And we started to notice with the stars, there was this thing called the red shift. Now a red shift means this. When you, when you stretch something, if something's moving away from me, it stretches the light spectrum to the red if it's moving away. And what they noticed was there was a lot of red movement. Like all these stars had a red shift, meaning something's expanding. It wasn't steady state. Everything's moving. And they're finding it's moving really, really, really fast. Everything's moving really fast. Huh. And then these two guys, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, were working at Bell Labs, trying to figure out a way to communicate and all this kind of stuff. And they had this antenna that was picking up this static. And they thought it was pigeon poop, but they went out there and it wasn't. And they kept, they, no matter what they did, they could not eliminate this static. What they are picking up is called cosmic background radiation, which is the calling card of a beginning. And that was it. And from there, steady state universe just dropped off. No one believes in it today. They all believe in a beginning. They call it the big bang. I call it God's voice. It went bang and we have everything we see here. How cool is that, right? But here's what it's saying. There was a beginning and there's also going to be an end. That like a garment that gets wore out, like really bad styles, like man capris. You roll them up and you get rid of them. And one day that's gonna happen to this world which is the book of Revelation. So if you look at Revelation, just simply, not getting all complex, it's earth gets crucified 
and resurrected into a new existence, which is better than you can imagine. It's why John, when he saw it, just kept wanting to worship this angel saying, I can't believe this. This is so incredible. It's just, it should be mind blowing, right? The streets are made of gold. Are they literally? I think so, but it's just saying, listen, asphalt is now gold. That's how much better this creation is than the one that you have right now. It will blow this one away. Imagine paving. Imagine we got this pavement down here. Imagine doing that in gold. How much would that be? A trillion, two trillion, five? I don't know. Trillions of dollars. But it's everywhere in heaven. It's just saying, it's going to be better. There's a better creation coming. And then lastly, he's a better conqueror. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvations? Angels can fight battles, and they do. Read the book of Daniel. Read Revelation. They can fight the battles, but they cannot finish the war. Only Jesus finishes the war. And there's coming a time we're one day closer when Jesus will roll up everything that is evil, rape, disease, cancer, COVID-19. He's gonna roll it all up, pain, suffering, and the last enemy, which is death. And he's gonna throw it in this place called the lake of fire where it will be banished for eternity. And then it's gonna be new heavens, new earth, and that's coming for all of us. How cool is that? That's why the book of Revelation chapter five says this, worthy is the lamb. John looks around, he knows, man, this has gotta to come to pass. Who's gonna be able to do this? And it says he starts to weep until he heard, he heard the lamb. Worthy is the lamb to loose the scrolls, to unseal the seals. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can finish this battle. Every enemy will put, be put under his feet and you and I will live the way we're supposed to live. Worthy is the lamb. Good news. Now, is that gonna be hard for Jesus? Read the gospels and see how demons respond to Jesus. Are they like, okay, come on, dude, let's go a couple rounds. No, they're not. What are they? Ah, please. We're begging of you. Don't, right? I mean, there's no contest. It was like me when my kids were little and I would wrestle them. I would make a stack of all four of them and with one hand, I would hold them and they'd just be eight legs and eight arms. Just, ah, I'd be like, yeah, gotcha. It's like that. I can't do that anymore. I used to be able to. Now I'm like, ow, my back. Hold on, time out. <laughs> no contest. Then why is he waiting? Because he's not willing that any should perish. And he wants your uncle and your brother and your nephew and your cousin and your mom and your dad to enjoy eternity the way it's supposed to be. That's why he waits, because he's patient. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to salvation. That's why. And so he waits. Not because it's hard, but because he loves us. And he wants everyone to get saved. So this is what this book is supposed to do to you. 
when you see how great Jesus is, don't worry, be happy, right? What, what stress, what worry is bigger than this? Nothing, nothing. And that's why the book culminates in a couple spots and one of them is Hebrews 4 verse 16 that says we can now come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain help in our time of need. Nothing's too great for him. He's better, bring it to him. And you know you've really prayed. Here's how you know you've really prayed. Here's how you know you've really been at the throne of grace when you're not burdened anymore because he's the burden bearer. That's how you know. If you leave prayer and you're still burdened, like, okay, you haven't really prayed then. You haven't given it to him and said, I trust you. I can't do this thing. This has got me beaten. I'm tired of it. I trust you. If you leave unburdened, you've actually prayed. You've come to the throne of grace and received help in your time of need. That should ignite your faith. Don't worry. Be happy. Jesus is greater. You may not see it right now, but trust me, he is. So if you need prayer for something tonight, get it. Turn to the person beside you. Would you pray for me? Come up here, talk to me, talk to Mark. We'd love to pray for you. Lift those burdens because Jesus is greater. And so Father, thank you for giving us the son. Thank you that you didn't create somebody to take the fall, but your love was so great that you took it. I pray that our hearts, like the Luke 24 disciples, would burn because of how good you are. That we'd leave this place, that the book of Hebrews would be a cosmic dryer shrinking all of our stains and problems, putting them in perspective to the sun. That they're nothing. That we would be fearless because of you. So may we, even tonight, cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. May we come to your throne of grace and obtain help in our times of need because you're greater than them. So may we go from here rejoicing in your greatness. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.